previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. Are you going to stick with your team? Are you going to leave? I was like, no, I'm stick with my team. I believe Patriots. This is Path Nation all the way. From Delaware, almost live, this is a Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to the Sports Refuge Podcast, the podcast where we talk with our guests about their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This week, my guest, Vanessa Junkin, is returning for her second appearance on the show. In fact, she was one of the first people I interviewed when I started doing this podcast. Previously, we talked about how she got into running as well as her career in journalism. We continue to discuss Junkin's interest in running as well as how she's become a Bibrave Pro and how she's been able to test out some of the newest technology and gear. We'll also discuss her career in journalism as well. We talk about some of the things that she's experienced as a journalist and what it's like transitioning into the role of public relations. And we'll also talk about some of the things she's done and people she's met along the way in her journeys running. Right now, here's my interview with Vanessa Junkin. We've been having a lot of people come back, especially especially from the first go round. She was probably one of the first people I had interviewed that started this whole podcast craze, I guess the best way to use it. And I'm glad to have her back. It's Vanessa Junkin of the blog. She runs by the seashore. How are you today, Vanessa? Happy new year. I'm great. Happy New Year to you, and I'm glad to be back on the podcast, so thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know there's a lot of stuff going on, and you guys just came out of a uh, busy time in late December, and I'm glad to have you here. Looking at your previous goals that you had for the 2018 year, I know you had a lot of things on a checklist, and just going into that year, what were the biggest goals that you had, and how were you able to accomplish those? Yeah, so I actually was just referencing my goals for 2018. I kind of knew like where I was, but one of my biggest goals was to run 2018 kilometers for the year 2018, of course. Some people run the year in miles, but that seemed like a little much compared to my previous one. So that seemed like it would be a good goal. It's a little bit over 1,250 miles. So I actually ended up with 1,342.07. So it was my highest mileage year ever, and I've been tracking since 2011. So it was nice to hit my highest year. I did have some time goals that I did not meet, but I still feel like I had a successful year. I am going to try to bring back a little bit of speed this year, but we'll see how that works out. I had a lot of other things go well, so I wasn't too worried about the speed. And then I also wanted to run a race on my birthday. and Unfortunately, the weather just did not cooperate, or at least the weather forecast did not cooperate. So I wasn't able to do that this year. I did still do a run, but my birthday will be on a Sunday this year, so I have another chance because usually races are on the weekends. So. When it comes to running, I know there's always a lot of wear and tear involved. And I know in our previous episode, we discussed that. As the year progressed, how did you try not to wear yourself down too much? Well, I definitely do think that rest days are very important. I also became a Roadrunners Club of America certified coach in 2018. So I kind of learned a little bit more about kind of rules for, you know, keeping yourself healthy and not injured. Of course, nobody can completely prevent injury, but there are certain things you can do like not increasing your total mileage by more than 10% per week, things like that. You don't want to jump from regularly doing like a 10 mile week to doing a 30 mile week. You want to like gradually work up to that. Some of the things, you know, are kind of common sense, but having that kind of knowledge has helped me. And I've tried to just recently, I had a minor ankle sprain and I took a few days completely off from running. And I do think that if you do have an injury, rest is important and rest is important even if you're not injured. How often do you run a day? I would say that I normally run about four to five times a week. I just started another cycle of marathon training. Um, this time it'll be for the Salisbury Marathon, which is here in Salisbury, Maryland. I did do some traveling during 2018 for running, but for now I'm going to stay a little bit more local in 2019. So I'll run... I might get up to five or six days a week during the peak of the training, but I do think it's important to have at least one rest day a week. There are people that do the run streaks, and I've done a few short ones of those, but I think the body benefits from rest. Now, I know you mentioned you run four to five days a week. How many miles a week does that end up coming out to? I would say that a lot of the times I would end up between – 20 to 25 miles. Um, before I started training for the marathon, I did three out of four weeks leading up to that. I did about 30 to try to give myself a good base. 
because my marathons have gotten slower over the years. So I'm trying to turn that around a little bit and I'm going to try to do that by working up to a 50 mile week, which would be, you know, definitely a lot for me, but I'm going to gradually work up to that and take cutback weeks along the way to help me get there. But, you know, when I'm not really training for anything, I would say maybe 20 to 25 miles a week. How do you try to acclimate yourself to running in the dark? Well, I have a lot of different stuff that I use. It's important to be able to see and also for people to see you, especially cars. So a lot of the people in the running club and I, we have these Knox gear vests. So it's basically like a light up vest that you wear different colors. You can have it flashing or you can have it on a single color. So that really helps you be seen. And then I've also tested out some different products through Bibrave through my blog. I'm a Bibrave pro, which we get different products to test out and different races that we are, you know, able to run for them. So I've gotten a, a hat that has, it's by Spy Belt that has a light in it. I've also gotten knuckle lights, which are like lights that you hold. And I've also gotten a Sabre pepper spray. So even though that's not necessarily about being seen, it could be if you do feel unsafe, which running with a group, I feel pretty safe. But for example, when I ran at Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, it's a little more remote out there. I did go there one day to run and I brought the pepper spray and and just being alert, I also have another thing I got from Bibrave was the Aftershocks headphones. So those are bone conduction headphones, so you can actually listen to, you know, whatever you're listening to, but also hear your surroundings. And I also have a road ID, which I also got through Bibrave, which has names and numbers of emergency contacts. So if something happens to you, then the medical personnel or regular people, I guess, that are just passing by, they can call your emergency contacts and try to get you the help you need. So I try to be pretty vigilant about safety. I know that you, you mentioned BivRave, and I know that you do a lot of product testing as well through them. As mm-hmm. What are some of the items that really have that caught your fancy, some of the things that you've really liked that you've been able to test out? Yeah, so something really cool that I got to do through BivRave recently was go to the running event in Austin. So we were actually given a big swag bag of all kinds of different items. We got two pairs of shoes. And we got a Brooks jacket. We got pants and a sports bra from Handful. We got Vory shorts. We got some activated hemp products from our Arcanum, a roller. So we got all kinds of stuff. So that was a really cool experience. So over the month of December, I basically tested out all the different things we got through that. I have really enjoyed using the Aftershocks as well. And I also really like UFO shoes, which are for recovery, and they're just really comfortable to walk on, and I enjoy using those a lot. Really, everything I've tested, I really have liked. Mm -hmm. As a runner, are you flat-footed? Do you have high arches or things like that? Because I know just being flat-footed, it can be very uncomfortable, especially if you don't have the proper foot support for you, and especially add into running. It's like all the joints and everything are shaking, and, and I feel like it can be a very painful thing if you don't have the proper equipment for your feet. Yeah, so I think I personally just have, as far as I know, I just have normal feet because I've never really had a huge issue there. Um, I have gone to a chiropractor for shin splints, and at some point he realized that my big toes, they don't bend all the way. So I do wear inserts in the running shoes that have an actual cutout that I just cut based off his original cut. But other than that, whenever somebody is starting out with running or anything like that, it is important to get shoes that work for your kind of feet and the way that you run. So if you go to a store like VP Shoes, which we have a great partnership with the Eastern Shore Running Club, they can fit you for shoes and they can like suggest different shoes for your feet and they can watch you run on a treadmill and see how they work. So I always recommend that people get fitted for shoes. Of the places that you've been to, I guess not just this year, but overall that you've been able to travel for races, what has been the most unique place that you were able to go and what made it so unique? One of the most unique races that I did was probably the Big Sur International Marathon. It was my first time going to California and the race goes from Big Sur, you take a bus out there to Carmel. So it's very scenic and there's a piano player on the course and It was definitely a cool experience, and I made it into a vacation while I was out there. I know, especially when it comes to, again, going out there to run, 
how do you just try to balance that time knowing you're there for the race, but you also want to interact and check out the different places and amenities around the areas? So I feel like whenever I've traveled for a race, I usually get there like shortly before the race, not like too short of a time, but maybe like a couple days. And then I try to have the bulk of the trip after just so then I can like eat or drink whatever I want. You know, I don't have to worry about, like, going to bed early, you know, things like that if I want to do exploring. But, and you don't want to walk around too much before your race because you don't want to get sore. Actually, in the Roadrunners Club of America class that I took, they even talked about, you know, if you're trying to do well at a marathon, they basically said don't go to the expo. I mean, you obviously need to go to get your rib number and your materials, anything you would need for the race, like your race shirt, which you don't actually need for the race, but... You need to go there to pick up your stuff. But if you walk around and use all your energy, that's obviously not good to wear your body out. But I'm not a super competitive runner or anything like that. I mean, I'm going to explore basically as soon as I get there. So I know like when I went to Vermont, I think I got there on like a Friday night and the race was on a Sunday, if I'm remembering correctly. And then I went on to New Hampshire after that. So and within Vermont a little bit more so. And I don't do a whole lot of planning. I kind of just like exploring. But I also, if there's anything I specifically want to go to, I do look up some stuff ahead of time. And I think I may have asked you this in the previous episode, but when it comes to the week of the race and a couple of weeks before the race, nutrition-wise, what do you do? Do you try to avoid the carbohydrates? Do you try to use them to your advantage? And if so, what food do you think gives you the biggest carb boost? Um, it's definitely important to get some sort of carb for the race. I don't really have a go-to meal. I know before Vermont, I got a burger. The girl I was with got a burger, and we were like, okay, like that sounds good. Got some fries. I feel like I eat so many carbs in general that I'm not really like lacking for carbs. A popular meal before races, pasta, which I do a lot, but I'm trying to think of what I had before. I think I had like pizza before the latest marathon I did, which was Freedom's Run, which is carbs. It's also really important to hydrate, especially that entire week before the race, but even maybe like two weeks before, really as much as you can. And I also drink like electrolytes like noon or something like that to kind of stock up on those. And then I'll also bring along fuel for during the race at the Vermont City Marathon. Before I did that race, I started training with Untapped, which was going to be on the course and it was there. So it was maple syrup. So it's actually just maple syrup that they put in little packets. I've never been a huge fan of the consistency of a lot of gels but those i like so i've been using those since and just moving off the subject and speaking of carbs i know you are a fan of beers mm-hmm. what kind of beers do you prefer and what is it about beer as opposed to maybe like something like wine that's more appealing well i i like pretty much all kinds of craft beer i'm not a huge fan of sours and then i'm not like a huge fan of like bourbon so there's like some beers that are like bourbon barrel age my boyfriend mike is a brewer at key brewing company and previously he brewed at evolution and then prior to that he was a home brewer so we've been together almost nine years so i've definitely been exposed to a lot of craft beer and kind of it's interesting to explore the different types of beer that is out there and the creativity because they're all a little bit different and also a lot of them have really fun labels which doesn't really have anything to do with the taste necessarily but it is kind of fun to try different beer from different areas for example the beer that they have in vermont is one of the most famous craft beers is heady topper so that's only available in that area you can't buy it in maryland for example it's kind of fun to try different ones and I do like the taste. I don't feel like I'm that knowledgeable about wine. I do enjoy wine sometimes, but I just feel like I don't necessarily know what I like as much. So I usually gravitate toward beer. I know a lot of people like IPAs and it's just something about it being a little too strong that makes it such a, I guess, a turnoff when it comes to beers. I'm not really big on ones that have that strong taste. I know it's easier to get the ones that you see all the time, the name brand ones, Corona, Heineken, and things like that. But sometimes, I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying a new beer, but other times it tends to be a little overwhelming. And then you feel like, well, <laughs> I spent this money for this beer. I got to finish it. And it's sometimes <laughs> the taste can be a big turnoff to trying a beer. Yeah, I mean, you want to get one that you like, so there's always some sort of risk 
you know, if you're trying something new, but I think it's kind of fun to try something else out. And if you're not a huge fan of IPAs, there's actually all different kinds of IPAs as well. Like, I feel like the market has really grown. So there's, for example, like session IPAs, which are maybe four or five percent. They're not quite as strong as a regular IPA or a double IPA or something like that. There's root IPAs and there's black IPAs. There's all different kinds. So I guess the best thing to do at the store if you don't know what you are getting into is to pick a style that you like. You can look at reviews. There's websites like Beer Advocate and apps like Untap. Things like that. You can look at reviews. And then also some stores offer something where you can get like a mixed six pack or something so that you can just try like one bottle or can of each. So at least if you don't like it, then you didn't waste like your money on all six. <laughs> I know you're big into coffee as well. Are there any coffee flavored beers that you find that satisfies the palate? So I'm a big Rise Up fan in general. I go to Rise Up a lot to get coffee. So I do like the Rise Up Stout that Evolution does. That's one that comes to mind. Because there are a lot of coffee beers, but I feel like they're not as popular as some other types of beers. Trogues has one. Java Head that I think is also good. I haven't had that one in a while. But yeah, there's some good coffee beers out there. Unfortunately, you can't really like swap them. Like You can't really have a coffee beer in place of a coffee if you're having it in the morning. I mean, not unfortunately, because it doesn't really matter, but you got to have both if you're going to do regular coffee and a coffee beer. I assume with the coffee beer, it has to be a little more stronger than your average beer, because I know coffee is strong, and I've never been a fan of it. People marvel that I am a morning person without even touching coffee. It's just, I don't like the taste of coffee. If coffee had tasted more like, I guess, hot chocolate, it would be something that would probably be one of my favorites or even something I'd do sparingly. But is there a strongness, a bitterness to a coffee-flavored beer? I definitely do think they're not always the highest in alcohol. They're definitely higher than like a domestic type of beer like Corona or something like that. And they are dark in color. Some of them are maybe kind of like smoky in a way or something like that. I'm not an expert, but yeah, I would say that that coffee flavor definitely comes through. So if you don't like coffee, I probably wouldn't recommend it. There's also some beers. I don't have too much experience with these, but that are like lighter in color, but they still have coffee in them, but they still have that coffee flavor. What would you say is the worst beer that you've ever tasted? I'm not really a huge fan of like regular beers, I guess, like, you know, like Bud Light or something like that. So I'm more for the craft beer, but as far as, like, the worst beer, like, I, I wouldn't be able to think of any names. I wouldn't get them again if I didn't like them, so. Yeah, and you always try to power through a drink to say, man, I'm not just going to sit here and waste the money. I'm just going to try to at least get my money's worth and say I did it. It's like mm -hmm. the whole thing when it comes to, for example, light beers. Never been a fan of light beers. I would not go out of my way to buy a light beer, but... Mm -hmm. If, like, for example, if someone's buying a beer and it's light beer, it would be very disrespectful to turn it down because it's a gift from a friend. Yeah, I mean, I'm not not going to drink something that a friend gives me, you know, unless I just can't choke it down, I guess. But, I mean, I can drink a light beer. Going back into running after that little foray in beers, how many out-of-state races did you participate in in 2018? Let me double-check for 2018 because I listed all my races on my blog, I did get to start out with, I did my marathon states. I'm hoping to do all 50 states eventually. It's kind of like a lifelong endeavor, I guess. So I'm trying to space out my travel. And I also don't really like to do more than two marathons a year. But I did do states number six and seven, which were Vermont and West Virginia. So in addition to those two states, I did runs in Maryland, the rock and roll Washington, D.C. half. So far, three states and Washington, D.C. I also did a couple races in Virginia, the run for the animals on the eastern shore of Virginia, and then the rock and roll Virginia Beach. I did races in Delaware, a few of those. And that would be it. So I guess five states in D.C., Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, West Virginia, Vermont, and D.C. I know previously we mentioned you wanting to eventually do the Boston Marathon. What are some other big name races that you're interested in participating in and running in just to test yourself? So I'm definitely interested in the Marine Corps Marathon. That one is actually on my birthday this year. So I'm really thinking about that as my 2019 fall marathon because I like to do two per year. So that's one that I just have heard so much praise for. And, you know, it's a really emotional experience 
for some people. I know they have the Blue Mile, which is dedicated to service members who have lost their lives. And I'm pretty sure you get your medal from a Marine and running through Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area in Virginia. I also have heard really good things about Grandma's Marathon, which is in Duluth, Minnesota. I think it's fun to travel around the country and and beyond, but I've mostly stayed within the country. I've never been to Minnesota. Also, Vibrave, which I'm part of, they have something called the Vibrave 100. And it's like the top 100 races. Some of them are marathons, half marathons, 10Ks, 5Ks. So the top marathon for the past two years was actually the Missoula Marathon in Montana. So I've just heard that it is beautiful. It obviously has good reviews if it, you know, landed in that top spot both times. And I've also never been to Montana. So I think it'd be fun to, these will probably be over time. They're not all going to be the same year, but it'll be fun to hopefully see some different areas of the country while getting to run as well. Running races and running in general during the entire year. What is the best season in your mind for running? I'm torn between the spring and the fall, definitely not the summer or winter. So the spring is really good because, you know, you're getting out of the winter. One of the best parts about the spring is that it is getting lighter out at night because basically I get off work at five and about the time I leave work, it's already dark out pretty much now in January. And then it's also really nice weather in the spring. Like we kind of had a taste of spring this past weekend, it was probably at least in the 50s, if not warmer, and I was wearing a short sleeve shirt, so that was super nice. I would say the ideal temperature for running for me is about 55 degrees, and I could wear a t-shirt and shorts in that. And then the fall is also really nice because the summer is an extremely hard time of year to run because of the heat and humidity, and it is definitely my least favorite time of year to run is the summer. The fall is always nice because you're getting relief from that summer heat and it's also a very nice time to run. Good weather. What has been the most scenic race that you've run? I would have to go with Big Sur as being the most scenic, which I did mention earlier as like one of the coolest trips. You're just running along the Pacific Coast Highway and definitely a beautiful race. I also think that the I do a lot of races in the Delaware beaches, and I also think that's a really nice area to run, like the Rehoboth Seashore Marathon and Half Marathon. It goes on some of the trails back there, and it's really nice. When you do running, I know you mentioned the beaches. Do you try to do the running in a sand for like resistance training or things like that? Or I know you've run on the boardwalks, but have you tried to tailor your workouts and runs? I haven't done too much running in the sand. I usually do it like maybe a couple times per summer. And it's really definitely very hard. Actually, at the Rock and Roll Virginia Beach, they have a race that's like the mile in the sand, which I've never done and I think this year, again, I'll be doing the Mike Sterling 10K in Crisfield, so I won't do the mile in the sand. But I definitely wouldn't do very well time-wise, although everybody has the same disadvantage there. But it definitely slows you down a lot to run in the sand. One of the biggest things I know that you've done and that you've been very steadfast on is detailing your runs and chronicling your runs on your blog, She Runs by the Seashore. What was the biggest thing that you did to, I guess, build your audience? I definitely try to share my posts as much as I can without being annoying, hopefully. So I have a Facebook page for my blog. I also have a pretty active Twitter page that I also used when I was a reporter. So between running people and people that I gained from reporting, I have over 3,000 followers on there. So I'll share the links to my stories. And I do participate weekly in BibChat, which is through BibRave. They post different running questions and we answer. So you get to know the other runners in the community from there. And then I also have my Instagram page where I will post running pictures very often. There's also different communities like BibRave will share our links to the products with each other and there's a website sweat pink there's a facebook group for that and you can share your links and share them with other bloggers so over time i've you know grown my audience through social media and hope to get you know blog followers on the site as well you can subscribe on the site and then you can get an email when there's a new post so just doing whatever i can to get it out there and if i run a race then i will share a link to the post like on the race page Or, for example, the Rehoboth Marathon has a really active Facebook group. So I shared my post in the group, and that was like one of my most popular posts of the year just because of that active community there. Normally, how quick is the turnaround, especially from documenting an event like a race and getting it up on the website? Um, 
really depends what else I have going on. I try to get stuff up pretty fast. Just I think that's probably a lot of my reporter background. You know, you want it to be timely and you want people to still be thinking about the race. So I would say I usually try to get it up within a week. But, you know, if I'm traveling, then I generally don't write it while I'm still on my trip because... You know, I want to spend my time exploring, and it does take me kind of a while to write some of the more detailed posts. So basically, it's when I have a free moment, but I try to not let it be too long, but it's not always a specific amount of time. And just going back to the reporting background, and I always think about, especially in college, you're always taught, even when it's not in maybe like a student newspaper, when you're in just any class, you're always taught to write long, write long. And then when you get into print journalism, write short, write short. And I think that's a very tough thing to try to make that transition to. There's so much information you sometimes want to put in, but you just don't have the space to put in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think I definitely learned to write a lot shorter. I think it's a lot harder to write shorter than it is to write long. Some of my posts are pretty long, but you know, it's my blog, so I can write however much I want so if people don't want to read the whole thing they don't have to but sometimes I'll break it down with like different subheads or pictures you know it's not just all text but definitely when reporting I definitely had to learn to shorten it like when I worked at the school paper sometimes you know I would change the layout basically so I could write more and now I'm kind of embarrassed that I did that because I could have just shortened my writing like a journalist should be able to do so now that I have multiple years of journalism experience I am much better at deciding what to cut and what to leave in the story with your experience and a background as being a copy editor as well are you a fan of the inverted pyramid method for a news story i do think it's a good way to get your point across but i really like writing interesting leads that i feel like will pull you in so i mean if you only have like three or four paragraphs or you know something short then you might want to go with the inverted pyramid but i do think it's fun to try to think of something creative for the lead yeah, I always thought that and making headlines, sometimes those can be some of the biggest challenges, but I did thrive and I loved the challenge of trying to think of something catchy sometimes and sometimes trying to find something that would fit a particular space. That's the one thing I can say I definitely enjoy as my time as a copy editor because other than sort of being chained to a desk, it wasn't a very fun experience. Yeah, and like when I was a copy editor, I also got to do page design, so I tried to think of creative things to do with that so one of the posts or one of the stories that I had a lot of fun with was actually a story that I wrote about running and I like created a fun design for that you know that was interesting and I just actually enjoy proofreading a lot so I enjoyed that as well yeah there are so many times and we've discussed this before there are so many times you'll see stuff but you're sort of trying not to call it out because it could lead to a very awkward situation I remember I went to an event at a theater where they had the names of the celebrities of people who performed at the theater. But whoever decided to put up the board and put up the sheet, names were spelled wrong and just so many things on there that I just sort of like grimaced and winced looking at it. It's like, ugh. Yeah, I definitely see more errors than I point out. But sometimes it seems like something the person should know. Sometimes I'll like discreetly let them know or... You know, I mean, I'm trying to think of what it was, but, you know, occasionally I'll post an error if I feel like it definitely should have been caught and it went past, like, multiple people. But, you know, if it's, like, some, like, small local business or, like, you know, a fellow blogger, I'm not just going to call somebody out on something like that. But I can't think of the one I'm thinking of. But it's definitely hard sometimes if you see something that you know it should be different and you're like, how did this get past all these people? But you can't really do anything about it. And the biggest culprit or thing that we see that the most at now is social media and the internet. And sometimes trying to read stuff that is hard to decipher, it's like wading through mud. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of stuff out there on social media, but sometimes that stuff doesn't bother me as much because it bothers me more if it went through like levels of editing and still has errors. So at least if people are on social media, they might be typing kind of fast or they're not like necessarily editing their work. Maybe they should be, but they're not always. Yeah. When it came to writing, always trying to go a different direction and avoid using a word that is tough to try to differentiate, like the effect and effect, that was always a tough one for me. And Mm -hmm. I always tried to go the route by using impacted or some other verb that would actually fit better instead of trying to go through that whole thing of just trying to remember effect or effect. But I mean... Mm -hmm. Some writers have that, and it's one of those things that I remember a professor of mine in college always said, sometimes it's better to write nickel words using $1 vocabulary. 
Well, you want people to be able to understand what you're writing, so if you don't really know what the word means or you had to look it up to put it in the story, then it might be something that other people won't understand. Yeah, and I think especially, I guess, with print journalism, it gives you a little bit more of an opportunity for someone to, if someone has a question about a word, they'll stop and maybe nowadays look it up on the phone like, oh, that's what it means, as opposed, you can't use those in television broadcasting because the longer someone's trying to think about what does that word mean, they've already missed the point of the story. Yeah. Do you miss journalism at any point? Do you still miss it now? I know at one point you were freelancing, but do you really miss it a lot? I'm actually still freelancing. So I am writing for Ron Washington. So we just had a meeting yesterday. That was why I was in Arlington. So I'm glad that I'm still able to continue my my journalism through that. So I think that I haven't really missed it that much because I've been able to kind of stay in it in some capacity and writing about running is very fun for me because it's my hobby so you know so I've enjoyed that and then I write on the blog which is different than journalism because I'm not really doing interviews but and then I also get to do public relations through my job which you know is also cool that I get to do that which is also not the same as journalism but I feel like I get to do enough of what I did that I'm happy with where I'm at and no, I understand that completely. I know recently, late November, I just started a new job. And after basically 11 years in newspapers, it's interesting where I work. A lot of people at one point worked at a lot of Gannett papers in New Jersey. So it's very interesting hearing their perspectives and things like that. And then hearing one person mention, when you really get out of the newspaper business, you sort of look at it and notice how sometimes of a toxic environment it can be. And sometimes it has its ups and downs especially with this new job i'm on a day shift i can actually see especially once spring or summer comes around you actually see a sunset as opposed to being stuck in a building where you go in at maybe like one o'clock and don't leave till most reasonable newspapers you wouldn't leave till like 10 or 11 but since we worked in such small markets and all the downsizing going on you don't get out till like 8 30 or so i feel like it was a welcome change and sometimes you just have to know when you gotta go Sometimes it's your choice. Sometimes it's not. We've seen our share of people end up having to take the walk out because they were told, uh, yeah, you only got like 15 minutes to clear stuff out. Yeah, it's definitely sad because I do really believe in newspapers and, you know, telling the news and, you know, I definitely support journalism and newspapers. So it's hard to see kind of what's happening to the industry. But on a personal level, it is nice to be able to leave at a regular time and that's when I started the group runs once I knew I was going to have more regular hours. Yeah, I feel like once you have that whole schedule set where, okay, you go in at eight or nine or so and you leave four or five and it's a consistent schedule, it's so much better. It felt like sometimes if you're the day reporter, you're the luckiest person in the world because you can actually get out at a decent time unless you're a sports reporter. If it weren't for being a sports reporter, the only other thing I would have been interested in was cops and courts. And I think we discussed that before and... Those were the only two things. Honestly, I've done my share of meetings and I've done my share of other tedious things. And they are definitely huge extremes, especially on one side, you're going to basketball games, sporting events and things like that, catching all the action. Maybe being a crime writer, you know, you remember that whole thing they used to do on Facebook that mean what I think I do, what my friends think I do, and what I'm actually do, and all that stuff like that. I know as a crime reporter, we're not solving crimes or things like that, which is so over the top and so super cliche for TV shows when it comes to crime writers. We're going to be the ones breaking the stories and things like that. But I feel like those are probably the best two things for me. Government, I wasn't really intrigued in that. And, you know, everybody has their niche when it comes to being a reporter. Yeah, I liked the beat I had. I thought it was really interesting. But, you know, I feel like it's fun to see people get into their beats when they do and really get to know all the sources and break some news there. It's always fun. Yeah, that's probably the best feeling in the world. Getting a chance to break a story before the competition, making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And I feel like not as many people get that opportunity anymore. Yeah, I mean, it might be hard if since newsrooms have downsized. I mean, it's harder to be as in touch with the beat and the sources and you might be getting the news from a press release or something like that and then everyone would have it at the same time so not quite the same but you know i'm sure it obviously still happens somebody has to break the news yeah and i think the toughest thing is especially the friday evenings when someone sends out a stealthy press release thinking no one's going to catch it yeah i don't do that as a pr marketing person my press releases always go out during normal hours <laughs> and they're always positive we're not really hiding anything 
Yeah, that's the one thing. I guess when it comes to the mechanism of interviewing a person, interviewing a source or someone for a story, just trying to figure out the right questions to ask. Like, for example, with this interview, I'm just trying to figure out as things go along, the gears grind in my head. What are some of the best questions to ask? And sometimes it's all about example of just being a good listener and knowing something that catches your ear. And I don't know. I mean, I guess especially the pros, they know how to do it. But I don't know if that's something you may feel that's lost on younger reporters getting into the business now where we've been probably fairly removed from the newsroom environment for a while. So we don't really get to see the inner workings with that. Yeah, like I don't really know what people's, you know, strategies are nowadays, but I usually go into an interview with some questions written down or topics, I guess, but I definitely let the interview go where it goes. I'm not going to follow my order of questions. I just kind of have those as ideas or if the one question ends and it's just over. Then I'll go on to one of the other questions. What was the most prepared that you went into an interview for? I mean, I used to write down tons of questions, but then when you think about it, you could write down 20 questions and you could use them all up in like 10 minutes. Hmm. I'm not sure. Like the first thing that just kind of popped into my head was I did, but it's hard to remember because I've been at my job for almost three years. So, but I do remember I did interview a shooting victim that was the victim of a domestic violence incident that happened outside of Salisbury University, some of the off-campus housing. And I remember sitting down with her. We used to have the room that had like the couch. So I, I sat down with her and we had somebody taking video, I'm pretty sure. So it's not a super clear memory. I don't remember exactly how much research I did, but I had covered that story and I had done a lot about it. And I actually interviewed her, I think it was a few months later. So I was really familiar with what happened. And I'm sure I went in with numerous questions. I guess being on the scene live, I know we just went directly from running back into journalism, but you ever had a situation where you're there on the scene and it's just embedded in your memory forever. Something like, wow, I I can't believe that this happened. I've had a time just starting out as a reporter i remember one of the first assignments i went to was a kid getting pulled out of the wicomica river in salisbury and it's like in a way you still see that and you sort of remember that and it's like maybe some of those things shouldn't stick with you and not like we've gone to like being war correspondents or anything like that but do you feel like there are some things that sort of stick into your memory for good or for bad yeah Definitely. Um, One of the worst ones, I mean, there were a lot of really horrible things, but one that I went to the scene not that long after was the Todd family in Princess Anne. The whole family had died because of carbon monoxide, and it was just really sad to see and all the people that were um, in the area and just knowing what had happened. It was like a father and several children, and that was just a horrible situation. I had actually just left for the day because I had the morning shift, and I got called back by Ben, our editor, and went over to Princess Anne, and that was just a a terrible incident. So I can just think about, you know, what... We didn't see the bodies. You know, we saw just, like, what the the neighborhood, and there were people outside. I guess moving on to lighter... (laughs) (laughs) subjects going back to running because honestly if this isn't the best segue running away from that whole situation into something a little more positive i know you do a lot of stuff with bib rave and you get to test out a lot of equipment how do you try to coordinate especially attire for the different seasons people say they like run hot or cold so i kind of run hot i guess they would say so i'll often wear t-shirt and shorts up until like probably 45 ish it kind of depends on like whether it's dark out and the wind and stuff like that. But, um, you know, as it gets colder, you do have to layer up some. Um, I did get some gloves that wasn't one of the Bibrave products, but I picked it up while I was at the running event. Um, got it for free, and it was these gloves, turtle gloves. So I've been using those um, not really that recently because it hasn't really been that cold. But they, like, flip over. They're like mittens, and then you can put it back over, and then so you can have your fingers exposed or not. And then there's also, um, you know, various hats. There's different sunglasses. I don't know. There's all different kinds of stuff that you can wear. So normally I'll end up wearing something relatively light. I did get one of the items I got in the swag bag was this um, Brooks jacket. So it's, like, super lightweight, but it's also really warm. So, um you know, so that's a good one to have. And I have like a vest and I have so many running shirts because of all the races that I do. So a lot of them get, most of them give out a shirt. So then I have like probably hundreds of running shirts that I don't get to wear all of them. Just looking on your website, of course, she runs by the seashore.com. One of the things I noticed that you mentioned, you joined a gym. What led to that decision to join the gym? Well, I guess for the listeners out there, how do you feel like that'll help benefit your running if at all? 
Yeah, so I've already been a member of a gym twice, and it hasn't really worked out because I haven't really gone. But I decided at the end of December to join Planet Fitness because it was, and I was not paid by Planet Fitness or anything, but they're offering a $99 deal for the year prepaid, and it said that it ended the 31st. But I figured that that was like only eight something a month. So that was doable. And one of the things I got to test through Bibrave was this app, Zwift. So basically, you set it up on your phone while you run, and it shows an avatar that's you running through these different courses and stuff. So it's kind of like a more fun way to run on a treadmill. And you can also do group runs with other people that are in anywhere, really. They can be in other countries. They could be in your country, as long as they're at the same time. So I wanted to be able to do more group runs with Bibrave through Zwift, so I don't have a treadmill at home. So I figured that would be good to to use the treadmill there. And I probably should do some more strength training because I really don't do very much of that. So, you know, maybe sometime I'll go in and use the strength equipment or see what I can do there. I guess comparing running on treadmills and running in a free-flowing environment, what is the biggest difference between the treadmill and just going out and doing a run? When you're running outside, you are propelling yourself. And then when you're running on a treadmill, it's like the same sort of motion, but your speed is set because if I pick that I'm going to run at like 5.5 on the treadmill, then the speed will stay exactly the same unless I change it. With running, you know, you automatically would change your speed probably at least slightly while you're running so that's different and then also one thing that i've never really liked about the treadmill is just staring at numbers kind of the whole time that's why i like using the zwift app and then when you're outside you get to see various scenic areas and that's one of my favorite things about running is kind of like exploring and being outdoors but it's not as fun at night when it's dark i mean i'll still do it but Recently, I went to the gym once this month so far, and I went to go use the Zwift app, so it was at night, so it wasn't like a super exciting time to run outside. I know there's maybe just my perception that, especially with running, it's an exercise and where you can sweat a lot and burn a lot off. Do you feel like that's something that's true? I do think that you can. I think that maybe your body can get used to running on a certain amount, because I definitely can't eat whatever I want you know, and not see an effect. But I, I mean, I definitely think it's a good cardio. It's a great way to be fit and healthy. And it's definitely a positive thing to bring to your life for both your health. And, you know, it's good mentally and it's good physically. So I definitely recommend it. I don't know. I guess for weight loss, it might be good to combine a few different things. And obviously a good diet. Going back to your trip to Vermont, you were able to participate in that race. You were able to meet Meb Kaflipski, who won the Boston Marathon not that long after the bombing. What was that experience like? It was really cool to meet him. I knew that he was going to be there because, you know, obviously I was following the race social media and updates and emails and things like that. So I knew he was going to be there. Um, I actually bought one of his books, but I didn't get a chance to read it beforehand. But then I listened to his other book while I drove there because it was a long drive. So I was able to listen to the entire book, which was really interesting. It was about his life. And so it was kind of cool. I already knew something about him, but not that much in detail. So it was cool to learn more about him. And then I saw something on Twitter that he was going to be at Waterfront Park. So I went over and got to meet him. And it was actually pretty empty, I guess. It wasn't where the expo was. So I guess people just hadn't necessarily seen the post or something. So I got my picture with him. I didn't have to wait in line or anything. But then I figured that I should... I saw some people they had gotten him to sign like their bibs and stuff. So I went back to the expo the next day and I was going to get him to sign my bib. But that day, the line was longer. But I did get another picture with him. But it was really cool to meet him. I mean, we didn't have like a full conversation, but I told him that I read his book and, you know, he was really nice and gave the thumbs up. And, you know, I always think it's nice when celebrity type runners and elites are able to be nice to the regular people. And he was on a relay team with some other regular people that were given the opportunity to run on his relay team. So it was definitely cool that he was part of the race and so gracious with meeting runners that were there. Jumping into another category, I know you have two cats. How did you become a cat person? So I never had any pets growing up, and I never really thought I would become a cat person. But we ended up adopting our first cat in May. It'll be four years. So um, our friend um, had, he had kind of like come into her yard. And I guess it was probably more of my boyfriend Mike's idea to get him. But I agreed, and 
then I guess it felt like it was like immediately I just love having him around and I just feel this like love for him even though it sounds kind of weird because it's a cat but you know and then so having him as our cat like I really got to kind of feel like I know him and his personality and cuddling and what his meows mean and things like that and then so last March I was leaving work one day and our other cat Foxy she like followed me out from work and I don't know I just kind of felt like it was meant to be I guess that I should be her cat mom so I actually had to go to a group run that day but I brought her some food from our house and then I went to the group run and I came back and she wasn't there anymore so I was like oh I missed her so then one of my co-workers actually found her the next day and I had checked with Mike and he said that you know that I could take her and make her part of the family so yeah so now we have two and I just like love cats so that was a surprise to me <laughs> What was the biggest, I guess, adjustment for Buddy Cat and Foxy for them cohabitating the same place? Was there any adjustment for them? Did they fight a lot? or? Yeah, there was definitely an adjustment. We had heard, I guess, from different friends that you're supposed to have the one cat in a room and kind of like gradually introduce them. So, you know, I think that Buddy Cat was a little territorial, you know, over his house. But now they don't always get along perfectly. Buddy Cat will hiss sometimes, but... You know, but overall, I think they are good enough. You know, they don't hate each other as far as I can tell. I think they get along. (laughs) (laughs) As we start getting close to wrapping up this interview with Vanessa Junkin of the blog, she runs by the seashore. One of the things I know that, especially during the holidays, I know that you celebrate Hanukkah. During our time in the newsroom, I know you started celebrating Hanukkah. What led to that decision to start doing that? Actually, I've been celebrating Hanukkah, like, since I was a kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. We usually do like, so like my mom's side of my family is Jewish and then my dad's side is Christian. So I've always grown up celebrating both. And then we usually do with my family, we do like a one day celebration for Hanukkah when everybody can be there on the same day because it is eight days, but it's hard to be with all the family members eight days in a row. So we usually just pick one day that we can all go. I was just starting to think I was just watching an episode of the Goldbergs in December where they started trying to ramp up every night of Hanukkah as a bigger and bigger Christmas type day every night. And it got to the <laughs> point where Beverly just sort of got tuckered out halfway through Hanukkah. The whole plot was that Barry's uh, girlfriend's dad, they didn't celebrate Christmas because that was around the time his wife left him. So in order to make him feel better, he just tried to have Beverly unknowingly ramp up every Hanukkah. Of course, her doing this one night it was just traditional stuff and then all of a sudden there was like a chocolate fountain and things like that and that's why it just made me think about that coming to mind it was just such a very interesting i guess setup and scenario for something like that yeah that seems like that would be very hard to keep up day after day so i like the way that that we do it (laughs) what are some races that you're looking forward to in this upcoming year in addition to the salisbury marathon that you're looking forward to that you have already written down on your calendar if at all yeah so i do a lot of the same races every year just because i like them and the community is so great so the first race of the year that i'm gonna do is probably the roadrunners club of america club challenge so that's at the end of february and last year i think was the first year that we had put in a team where it was at least a long time so different roadrunners club of america clubs in maryland can compete so we had five people from the eastern shore running club go to a course in howard county which was very hilly but i'm looking forward to doing that again and being part of that maryland running community and supporting representing the eastern shore running club I also always do the Tim Kennard River Run, which starts and ends at Salisbury University. My first year doing that was in 2010. The year after that, I didn't do it because I watched somebody's daughter that ran. But other than that, like every year I've run that race. That's one of my favorites. And I also plan to pace a lot of races again. The Coastal Delaware is the week after Salisbury, so I'll be pacing the three-hour group. It's a little bit slower paced than my normal pacing time, which is 2.30, since I'll be doing the marathon the week before. And I always do the Mike Sterling 10K and should be doing the Rock and Roll Virginia Beach again. Oh, I always do the Dogfish Dash and always do the Rehoboth Half. So I feel like a lot of my race schedule is races that I do every year, but I look forward to them. and enjoy returning to those. I don't know if I'll be doing any big travel this year, but I am looking at the Marine Corps and in DC in Virginia as well. So it's not super far from one there. 
What is the role of a pacer during a race? So basically, a pacer will keep up a consistent pace during a race to help people meet their goals. Usually you see them at the longer distance races, like a half marathon or a marathon. They're also at the Hot Chocolate 15Ks, which are in a few different locations around the country, which that's a little less than 10 miles, I think. So basically, a lot of times I'll do 2.30 for the half. I've only paced half marathons. I feel very comfortable with that distance, so I haven't paced any full marathons. So basically, if I'm the 2.30 pacer, then I will be completing the 13.1 miles in 2 hours and 30 minutes. So I wear a neon yellow shirt if it's with beast pacing and carry a pace sign. So I'll carry a sign that says 2.30. And then if your goal is to run the race in two hours and 30 minutes, you can stay with my group or in front of me. And if you stay with me the whole time and you started with me or near me, then you will meet your goal because there is the chip time. So you need to make sure that you do not start off. Basically, you can run with me and you will get your two-hour and 30-minute goal. So during the race, I look at my watch a lot and I also use a pace band which says what you need to be at for each mile. So the pace band for the 2.30 is about an 11.27 mile. So it'll say like mile one, 11.27, and then it will cumulatively say what you should be at at each mile. So I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head, but you know, at eight miles it might say like, like an hour and 31 minutes or something like that. So you really go based on the cumulative time so that your finish time is 2.30 and it doesn't just go based on your watch. Because a lot of times your watch will not be exactly 13.1. It might be like 13.2. So you have to do a lot of adjusting during the race. But I found that it's really rewarding. The last race that I paced, somebody actually came up and said I was her hero. And, you know, you hear about people that get their personal records. And it's nice to be able to provide that kind of, I guess, service for someone while also getting to run a fun race and enjoy the after party and, you know, help people reach their goals. Vanessa, as usual, I do appreciate it. What are some of the other ways that people can reach out to you and connect with you in addition to going to your blog, Sea Runs by the Seashore? Yeah, I mean, I'm very active on social media. So my Twitter and Instagram name is at Vanessa Junkin, just my name, V-A-N-E-S-S-A-J-U-N-K-I-N. So that's probably the best way to reach me. And then the blog has a Facebook page, Sea Runs by the Seashore. So I'm accessible at any of those places. Well, Vanessa, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back again for the third episode, which hopefully it'll be much sooner than a year so we can catch up and seeing how you're progressing along your pace. Okay, yeah, that'll be great. I'd like to thank Vanessa Junkin for participating in this interview, and I look forward to having her back for a third time. In our next episode, we'll focus on sports movies and a look at the Oscars with Ben Penserga and Brad Wilkins of the podcast Movies and a Meal. We'll also discuss how they coined the concept for the podcast, as well as their thoughts on who will win the upcoming Academy Awards in specific nominations. You can always find us on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and on iHeartRadio. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a great week. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.